In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. When God has other plans for those we love than the plans that we have for them, it can admittedly be pretty difficult. Um, we always want to shelter those that we love from all of the knocks and the blows that life deals out to all of us. Bill Beekner, um, one of my favorite authors, writes about a time when um, one of his daughters was struggling with anorexia. Eventually, he says, her body became sunken and hollow. Her whole head became skull-like. This is what he writes. The only way I knew to be a father was to take care of her, to move heaven and earth if necessary, to make her well. And of course, I couldn't do that. I didn't have either the wisdom or the power to change another human being like that. And it would be a terrible power if we did. The power to violate the humanity of another, even for their own good. The only way she would ever be well again was if and when she freely chose to be. The best that I could do as her father was to stand back and give her that freedom, even at the risk of her using it to choose for death instead of life. You know, the truth is none of us know very much about what God is doing in our life as it is happening. I mean, we usually see that better in retrospect, in the rearview mirror, as it were. How much less are we knowledgeable about what God is doing in the lives of those that we love? So whatever interventions we may make into their lives to do what we think is right or best, we tend to do almost blindly. We forget that God has a unique place in each person's life, that there is a covenant between God and those we love, just as there is a covenant between us and God. There is a calling that we cannot change, not for our life's partner, not for our children or grandchildren, not for our parents, not for anyone near or far from our hearts. For my money is one of the hardest lessons to learn in life, and we struggle with it. And I think it is at the heart of the gospel lesson that Dennis just read to us from Mark's gospel, one of the real turning points in the life and the ministry of Jesus and in his relationship with his good friend Peter. So the story unfolds on the way, as it were, which is the way so much of life unfolds, right? And in this case, he is on the way to Caesarea Philippi, this little town up in, uh, in the Galilee. They were walking along, 
maybe just basking in the glow or rehashing the meaning of three miracles that Jesus had just performed in the last two days. There was a deaf and mute man in the Decapolis to whom he restored hearing and speech. There was the feeding of 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish at Dalmanutha. And finally, there was a blind man in Bethsaida to whom he restored sight. It was like they were on a roll. <laughs> Everybody loves a winner. And the disciples liked the way it felt. So as they walked along, some on Jesus' side, some probably right behind him, maybe a couple of conversing on their own, eventually the conversation got around to, what were people saying about Jesus? So, Jesus said to them, who do people say that I am? Not that he was taking a public opinion poll so that he could adjust his approach to popular understandings like everyone, every politician that you know these days. No, I think he just wanted to get a sense of what the disciples were hearing. Who do people say that I am out in the church parking lot? Or, uh, or at happy hour? Or at the barber shop? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples said, well, the word on the street is that you're like John the Baptist, or you're like Elijah, or, or one of the other prophets. Hmm, you must have thought about that a few minutes. Elijah had been gone from the scene for 900 years. <laughs> and by this time in the gospel, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. So Jesus shifted the whole conversation to a much more radical question. Well, be that as it may, who do you say that I am? The question that every disciple must ask and answer on their own. The silence only lasted a second as Peter, good old impetuous Simon Peter, blurted out, I'll tell you who I think you are. You are the Messiah. And Jesus must have known that Peter was able to put those words into a sentence, but he had no idea what it meant. Kind of like three-year-old son or grandson who hears you say something around the house, which you may not have really wanted him to hear, <laughs> and he repeats it, though he doesn't really know what it means. Don't tell anyone what you're thinking. Jesus said, you don't understand as much as you think you understand, and they won't have a clue. And Jesus went on to explain, the Son of Man must endure great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed. And then on the third day, he will rise. But Peter never even heard that last word. He was so bowled over by the first part about all this need for suffering, he stopped him cold. Never, Peter insisted. Messiahs don't suffer. And we didn't sign on for suffering. Which drew perhaps the harshest rebuke in all of the scripture. Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind on human things, not divine ones. 
Can you imagine what was going through Peter's mind at that point? Told that he was in the same league as Satan. These were their, the closest of friends. If you would have taken a straw poll of the disciples as to who would be the most likely to succeed Jesus, Peter would have been at the top of the list. They were that close. But with regard to what Jesus could see on the horizon, Peter was thinking more of himself, of what he wanted Jesus to be, rather than what God wanted Jesus to be. Peter, along with all the others you see, liked Jesus best when he was strong, when he was winning. They liked the Lord of the Miracles. And really, who doesn't? If only you believe, the TV evangelist promises, God wants you to be wealthy. If only you believe, and by the way, in the corner of your screen, you'll see exactly where to send your donations. If only you believe, you will be healed. Lent, says another TV evangelist, L-E-N-T. Let's eliminate negative thinking. Can you imagine what Jesus would have said on the road to Caesarea Philippi to that? On his way to the cross? Let's sing one of those hymns that really gets us going. I hate these Lenten dirges. I come to church to get recharged for the next week. Hey, who doesn't want to march with a winner? Everybody loves a winner. What's more, Jesus gave the scribes and the Pharisees all the religious muckety-mucks up at the temple. He gave them the what for. They tried to pressure him. They tried to trick him, make him into some kind of charlatan. But Jesus stood up to them, never sparing his scorn for them. He called them a brood of vipers. He told it like it was, called them hypocrites. And how the disciples delighted in the times when he did that. Nothing better than a little righteous indignation. Those of you who grew up in the 60s, do you remember the rush that came from standing up to the establishment, standing up to the powers that be, Jesus told the temple priests what nobody else in Jerusalem had the courage to say, and they loved him for it. They had hitched their wagon to a rising star. He was the Lord of the miracles, and neither Peter nor any of the disciples wanted that to change. But Jesus knew better. He knew that there was a price to be paid for all of this, that he couldn't continue to do what he was doing and not be held accountable for it. The miracles, you see, were never self-serving. They were always done in the name of the God whom they glorified. But the disciples, then and now, never quite understood that. He was to be the Lord of the cross, and it broke Peter's heart to hear Jesus say that. So he rebuked him, 
only to be rebuked himself. The hard lesson that Peter had to learn was the lesson that all of us have to learn, and that is we can never change the intention of God for another person's life by imposing on that other our own intentions for what is best. To try to do that is simply to play God, and none of us does very well with that. We cannot change who another person is or who they are called to be. We can only love them. We cannot change who Jesus is. We can only follow him. Years ago, uh, when I was visiting Jerusalem, our little group went to visit, uh, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and the Church of the Resurrection. In one building are the places which are reverenced as, first of all, the place of Golgotha, the place where Jesus died, and also the tomb where Jesus' body was laid. And the traditions around these spots actually go back to the early church, so they have a lot of credibility. Though, to be honest, I didn't really expect very much when I went to that church that day. Most of the churches in Israel were, as one of my pilgrim cohorts called them, full of dirt, crowds, and junk, which is just a pejorative way of saying that Eastern Orthodox Christians don't do things exactly the same as we Western Christians. We like things done decently and in order. Everything in its place is the new Greenfield motto. Easterners, on the other hand, dust accumulates as a sign of holiness. Junk probably refers to the um, gaudy silver, gold icons and censers and hanging lamps that literally adorn every holy place. I have been to school. I have studied these things. My religious thoughts and devotions are almost always filtered through the cool, some would say cold intellect, and the respectful skepticism that Presbyterian ministers are known for. And so I was totally unprepared for what happened that day. We got to the area that marks Golgotha the place of the crucifixion. You have to climb up this narrow stairway to a chapel. It's called the Chapel of Golgotha. Candles and soft lighting. All of the Eastern Orthodox lamps and gaudy things. There's a huge picture of Jesus suffering on the cross and a marble altar underneath which you can crawl and touch the rock where they say Jesus was crucified. And so the faithful, one by one, went to the altar, knelt, prayed, touched that rock. Some of the people were so old they had to be helped to kneel. There was an 80-year-old woman who uh, I couldn't believe had actually ascended those stairs. 
And so I did it too. And I knelt down and prayed and touched the rock. And then I stood off to the sides to watch others from our group as they came forward, which is when it happened. All of a sudden, the tears just filled my eyes. I have no idea where they came from. It was as though I had been carrying them my whole life. I stood there, and all of these people came to my mind, people I had visited in the hospital, people with cancer and leukemia, people who had died of AIDS. I remembered children who had died prematurely. I thought about their parents and their grandparents. I remembered tragic deaths, suicides. I thought about the neighborhood. I was living in downtown Detroit at 3rd and Philadelphia at that point. I thought about the fear and the poverty and the drugs on every corner around me. I remembered the pain of growing up in a family with two alcoholics. All that was, all that might have been. And I just stood there and the tears ran down my face. Here I was in the place where the most sorrowful place on this, on this earth. And it was there, I think, for the first time that God th got through my thick intellectual skull that Jesus really did have to suffer and die. Not to assuage the anger of some kind of vindictive God but so that you and I would finally know there is no further length that God could possibly want to go than to reach out and touch all of this pain and sorrow, to take it on himself as his own. It was there that I understood that Jesus is first and foremost the Lord of the cross. And only then the Lord of the miracles, the greatest of which is surely embodying God's all-inclusive, never-ending love. You know, some of you I know grew up Catholic, so you're used to wearing a crucifix and hanging a crucifix on your um, room in your house. And of course, we Protestants, we're pretty big on the idea of empty crosses and uh, not wearing crucifixes. And there's always this debate as to which one is right. You know, uh, it, it happens in families, it happens in churches, which of course is so silly. Because the truth is there is not much hope. And there is really no reason to call Good Friday good if the cross and the tomb were not finally empty. But equally true, on the other hand, is that you know nothing of Easter. You know absolutely nothing unless you know him on the cross. Like Peter, I would love to have saved Jesus from that suffering. I wish that he could have avoided it, but he couldn't. He couldn't and be who God needed him to be, who you and I need him to be today. We 
none of us can make of others what we want them to be. We have to leave that to God who sees much farther than we can see and who is the only one who can transform sorrow into hope, who can even take death and bring new life out of it, and who has made the cross the sign of his greatest miracle. Nothing in heaven or on earth will ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus, the miracle of all miracles. Amen.